episode of the Starbase Indie Podcast you're about to hear was recorded live at Starbase Indie 2022. We're going to welcome everyone to this episode of the Starbase Indie Podcast, and we're going to talk about creating aliens on screen with Bill Blair and Sandy Gimple, a couple of pioneers in this area. Hello. So let's start by having you each introduce yourselves. Okay, um, I'm Sandy Gimpel, and um, what am I to say? I'm the mm-hmm. salt vampire, <laughs> and I'll have played a television also. And I'm Bill Blair, and I hold the Guinness World Record for the most special effect makeup characters portrayed in a career, which basically covers theater, films, TV, movies, live appearances, anything uh, where I dress up and have fun. And, and, and how hide many, myself. <laughs> how many times do you have to do that before you become a Guinness World Record holder? Well, for me, I don't know because actually Guinness World Records invited me to submit having mm-hmm. not had a category like that over all these years. I started out looking for people like Bella Lugosi and Lon Chaney and Ron Chapman, everybody who had done all these classic universal monsters, and I couldn't find anything, even with the internet these days. So I finally found the Guinness World Record website, sent in an inquiry, as they call it. They wrote back and said, we don't have a category like that. Would you please submit? And that's where it all started. And uh, for me, to answer that question, it was 202. And that was back in 2011. I have more that I've been invited by them a couple of times to resubmit, but only because they found out, they talked to people like Doug Jones, and it's like, no, you're the guy that's still going to have it, so you want to just update yours. <laughs> so um, how did you each get started playing alien characters on screen? Me? Yes, we'll start with you, Sandy. Okay. Um, I was a dancer, and that's literally how I got into the movie business, is being a dancer. And so my timing and coordination were good, and... Um, I had gotten a call to, they were looking for a new stand-in and um, stunt double for Bill Mummy on Lost in Space. And so Central Casting sent me out on this audition. They were doing all the background people and all of that, and I knew somebody there. And um, so I go on this audition, and all these guys are in the room asking me questions. And it's like usually all they care about is how tall you are and, you know, how much, you know, your coloring is correct and all of that to stand in. And they're saying, I'll, you know, we, you know, what, what did you do for a living? What, you know, how long have you been doing this? And, I, and one guy stands up and he goes, um, let me ask you something. How would you think about doing stunts? And on a Bible, I swear to you, I said, what's a stunt? <laughs> and the guy was Paul Stater, and he was doing all the stunts. Uh, he was stunt coordinating for Erwin uh, Allen. And he said, you know, come to the gym three days a week and you can – you can double him at do the stunts, and you can stand in for him. And I said, "Okay, cool. That sounds fun." <laughs> As I started learning how to jump off buildings, um, and then I was playing monsters on Lost Space. They just said, "You know, come with us. You know, you're, we're going to make you a fly, and we're going to make you an alien kid, and we're going to stick stuff on your face." And then um, Star Trek called and asked him, "Do we have anybody that was small that could do?" Um, the cage, which was the original pilot, and um, they said he said, "Oh yes, yeah, Andy can do that. She, I'll send her over. She's not busy this week." 
And they're always, they were worried about putting this stuff on your face because they had to glue it on with silicone and all kinds of weird stuff that they don't use today. And um, I wasn't allergic to anything, so that they, you know, this was great. Some people would break out really bad. And um, I remember one, one girl later in life ended up, uh, she was playing old lady, and they put the stuff on her face, and she broke out, and they literally had to take her to the hospital. And I got to call at midnight to come, you know, replace her. But anyway, so I did the first Telosian, and then, which didn't sell, of course, and then they um, called me back and asked me if I would be the salt vampire. So I got to be the salt vampire <laughs> with costumes where you couldn't see out of the eyes at all. Um, and then, um, like I said, just because I think of my timing, coordination, and dancing, and been wearing costumes for that stuff, it just kind of evolved. Great. Bill, so tell us how you got started. Uh, professionally, I got started very similar to Sandy with a company called Central Casting. They had sent me many times to interview for the next generation, everything from just a general background to uh, minor stunt work, um, having to carry LeVar Burton around as a Romulan, uh, photo doubling Brent Spiner, things like that. Six times, never got picked for one of them. Meanwhile, I've been working on Babylon 5 for a while. Uh, where to got, no, sorry, I'm jumping ahead myself. Alien Nation was first. And how that ended up happening was I was working on Demolition Man. And this gentleman, Richard Snell, who had done makeup for Star Trek and other shows, was visiting his girlfriend that day, and she was doing the special effects lenses for Wesley Snipes. He was looking for a teaching subject so he could teach other uh, makeup artists that wanted to learn the craft. And so just naturally, because I like Halloween, I like dressing up, and I thought, oh, more money, uh, I decided to volunteer. And he picked me out of, I don't know how many dozen people volunteered that day. And a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from Central Casting that said, you know, uh, we got a request for you to be on Alien Nation. Are you interested? It requires special effect makeup and being glued things to your face and all that. I said, yeah, I think I know who it is. It's fine. I got down there, and sure enough, Richard was there to greet me, introduce me to the assistant directors and everything. He had, he had requested me specifically because there was a character that was going to be the quote-unquote, like, brother of one of the lead characters that I would look very similar to. And that's how that started, which led to Babylon 5. And then eventually, one night, I got a call at 10 o'clock in the evening from the casting director at Central Casting. We get a lot of those late-night calls, don't we? We do. Especially when it's like, oh, we can go to them. We tried somebody new. Let's go back to who we know works. Right, exactly. Um, because Central Casting was also involved with Babylon 5. Um, and I got this call at 10 o'clock in the evening, and the guy says, are you still available tomorrow? And this was back before they, everything was done on paper and pencil. And uh, I said yes. They said, well, I've got a Klingon that just canceled on me for tomorrow. And he says, I'm not even going to call production. I'm just going to send you you're the right size and everything. And it's one of the things about me, I guess I'm kind of generic. I fit most anything that's anywhere between 5'10 and 6'2. Uh, so I went there. It turned out to be the episode, The House of Quark. They made me a member of the Klingon High Council, which was very important, apparently. 
and yeah, some rehearsing of things, special actions to know how to play a Klingon and all that. And Wardrobe liked what I did. Uh, makeup found out that, hey, we can do this guy at four o'clock in the morning and we don't have to touch him the rest of the day. <laughs> because by then I had already learned through Richard and uh, Babylon 5 and stuff exactly how much adhesive would be needed to hold the appliance on my face all day without having to be retouched. And so I just got called back and called back and eventually it just snowballed and I was there almost every day playing one, two, sometimes in the, in the uh, series finale, the two-parter, I played four different aliens in that whole two hours. Uh, and that's the thing about playing aliens. It doesn't matter what you look like. <laughs> you know, I was gonna add one thing that uh, I did um, Battlestar Galactica the same way and uh, they wanted somebody small you know that was that's the difference between the mm -hmm. two of us. They either they want somebody tall or they want somebody short. And, you know, and they trust you after they've used you a couple mm -hmm. times. And that's how I ended up being sea uh, tall. The head uh, head alien on um, Battlestar Galactica mm -hmm. was the same way. It was they once they put all that stuff on you, they don't have to take it off, and they don't have to play with you anymore. And she's very right about people who don't even have a clue about the allergy problems. And back then it was silicone and other things. Today it's latex and different adhesives. Anything with a chemical, you could be allergic to. And you won't know sometimes until you've already suffered from it. And if, if I may put a plug in for tomorrow, uh, my makeup artist, Carl, will be here later today. You can pick his brain. He'll be over by, at my table along with me. And we're going to do a demonstration tomorrow at 1230. And we're going to do it in the dealer's room, right back in the corner close to our tables cool. and Carl has some wonderful stories he can share with you about those that think they can do this is the other thing about the makeup is that um, like you said they could put it on us and they didn't have to bother us all day I when I did the animal they made me they always want me to make look old so they're putting you know prosthetics on my face to make me look older and we were shooting out in the park and it had to be 100 degrees. And be, the sweat and everything just working, it was the first time and the only time that it started coming off and they had to start sticking it back on my face. And the opposite of that was when I did, um, oh good Sandy, <laughs> get old your brain goes dead. Um, um, Planet of the Apes. And I was doubling a girl that's blind. The ape is blind, and she run, She finds out she's in love with the, with the human, and she goes running, and she falls off the cliff into the ocean. So they put all this ape makeup on me. We do the stunt where I fall off the cliff into my airbag, and then they put me in the ocean because there was too many rocks. So it was impossible to do it in one take. So I'm in the ocean. They saved me. We go to take the makeup off. It wouldn't come off. <laughs> And literally with Q-tips and acetone, like this, and my hands digging into the chair. And they're going, should we stop now? And I go, just get it off. <laughs> it just, for some reason, the salt water adhered it to my mm -hmm. face. It was, it was insane. I never have seen that happen before either. Uh, Richard told me a story one time about, uh, what was it? Uh, I can't remember. It was Meryl Streep or who? They did the uh, River Wild. And they actually had to call Richard in special because of his talents to be able to get the makeup to stay on her every time she went in the water. 
So it can go both ways. It's, yeah. it, it's a real skill, and I know we're going way beyond your question, <laughs> but it's a real skill of the makeup artist to know exactly the environment that you're in, to get it to stay on you as long. And also from the producers and everybody else standpoint, for people like Sandy and myself to know, hey, these people will save us money because our people aren't going to have to chase them around all day. We're not going to have to cut in the middle of the scene because the flap is, is popping up and coming unglued. You know, everything that could save production money gets us more work. Yeah. It's all good to go beyond the question. The whole point <laughs> is to get you two talking because you guys have all this great Well, you can history. take a vacation then. We don't have a problem with that. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> well, I'll give you another seed question you can okay. jump off right. of. Which, what is the favorite alien that you have been on screen and why? Um, probably the salt vampire. Probably the salt vampire with everything I've done. I, and I've done a lot of them like you have, but never in my wildest dreams did I think that the salt vampire would be so popular. And, and it was an interesting thing to do because I couldn't see, you know, and then the, the tentacles on my hands the suckers were out here so that without being able to see, I you, you reach for your hand to somebody's face, but I had to reach to Shatner's with the tentacles. And it was pretty funny, <laughs> but it ended up fine. And things were di so different in those days. I mean, when I changed from Nancy to me, they literally put a plate in front of the camera and drew me in and I couldn't move. And then they would put her in exactly where I was and vice versa, which they don't do anymore. Now you go do uh, with the dots in the costume and... Um, Computers match it up. Yep, exactly. Which phase are May I modify that just a moment? Because my favorite is actually not an alien. My favorite is Frankenstein's monster. And there's a very special reason for that. Matter of fact, there's a photo of it on my table. Plug, plug, plug. Uh, classic universal monster, right? And it also falls into the category of how long have I ever been in a chair at one time? And that was five and a half hours to do Frankenstein's monster and another half hour to get into the costume. Costume is what made it so very, very special for me. Our stylist for this project, which I was working with Elvira, uh, Cassandra Peterson was from Universal Studios. She got permission to bring a special piece of wardrobe for me to wear. Anybody remember the classic black and white series called The Monsters? She brought Fred Gwynn's original on-screen Monsters costume for me to wear. It doesn't get any more special than that. I'm sorry. No, that's, it's just, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. <laughs> So what was the most challenging alien that you have been on screen and why? That's a big question. <laughs> I don't know how you even, you know, compare one to the other. Um, I did one that wasn't an alien that I did with Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, he won the Batho Awards a few years ago. And I played a 104-year-old woman that supposedly was the last living person that ever worked with Charlie Chaplin. And I gave him a cane. I don't know if anybody saw this or not. It was all over YouTube, and I don't know how many hits it got. But it was four hours of makeup and hair to make me look that old. And Selma Hyatt 
wheels me out in a wheelchair, and nobody knew anything. I mean, literally nobody knew. The makeup people, Sasha brought his mom and dad in and his wife in to introduce me to them. And the head lady that put this show together knew, but nobody else knew. And we'd come in the day before, and we couldn't put pads on the floor because somebody would find out, right? And so I put my shin guards on backwards and I, because I was afraid the wheelchair was going to hit me. And basically what happens is I present him with the cane. He twirls it like Charlie Chaplin, leans on it, it breaks, he hits the wheelchair, and I go flying into the audience. And you should have heard, I mean, if you see it on YouTube, you guys will crack up. The audience screams, and then they realize that it's got to be a joke. But um, the makeup was incredible. I mean, absolutely incredible with all the prosthetics they had glued on my face the bald cap to put the wisps of hair in. It, it, it took it took almost four hours to get this done. And like I said, it wasn't an alien, but it was just as hard and fun. I've had several instances of difficulties in different ones that I have worn. The most difficult to wear, I do believe still to this day, is the board. Uh, but that doesn't make it necessarily difficult. It's just, it's so tight, it's hot, restricting. Uh, short story is at the end of six hours when we, when we get to set and when we go on our lunch break and we get to take this thing off, I'm standing in a puddle of sweat in the boots of it. In there. <laughs> but the most difficult one actually from an actor standpoint was the Pacmara or the Lort equally difficult on Babylon 5. The reason for that is working blind. I had two literally pinholes inside the bridge of my nose right at the tear ducts that I at least could tell there was light on on set. Couldn't see anything other than that. And it's okay if you just have to sit there like in council chambers and just nod or do some other things. But in this particular couple of scenes, I literally have to walk or run. Not that a pack morale runs very fast. But, uh, in this particular case, we're in a hallway facing this direction. At the end of the scene, I have to turn and walk down this hallway. Now, to make it even more difficult, there's a battery pack exposed on the back of the neck that's operating all the animatronics in the head. So I worked with another young gentleman in the scene with me where we do a little dance of a do, -si -do so that as I turn, he rolls in behind me and becomes the screen between camera and the back of my head. And I walk down the hall. And I got my own rehearsals for this a couple of times. You know, we do need rehearsals too when oh, we're yes. like this. We're not, you know, the main actors, you know, one or two rehearsals. No, I got five. Uh, so I could count off the exact number of steps to yep. the end of the hallway before I would turn right. That was the trick. Because yep. if I walk too many, just... <laughs> And I did, I face planted into that wall once because I lost count of my steps as I turned or something. I don't know where it happened. It's like, okay, that's my one for the day. Everybody, I'm sorry, bye, back. You know, they could actually hear me through the mask. They were actually more concerned whether I'd hurt myself. I thought they were probably more concerned whether I damaged the inner workings of the mask. Went back, did it again, everything was perfect, cut, let's move on. Uh, but yeah, it's it's most difficult when you are working blind, and that well, we do that most more of often. the costumes. I hate this. I didn't mean to interrupt you, no. but but 
I, you probably agree with me, 90% of the stuff we do, when they put costumes on you, they don't think about you having to see anything. They, the eyes are slits or they're little tiny circles, and you do, you have to count your steps to see where you're going, and um, that's what I did with Shatner, too. In the movie Argo, this is a fun story, especially for you guys. In the movie Argo, where I play the blue-eyed ro humanoid robot, and we're at the table doing the table read for this fake movie script, and I have the wonderful Adrian Barbeau sitting next to me. And I'm blind. I mean, I've got these red lights. I've got this <laughs> helmet on. And I've got a fan going inside that's making more noise than these lights probably do to keep me cool. Um, because I would suffocate in it. I had no way to hear my cue lines. I didn't because it's all, nobody's facing me. We're all at a table. Everything's side to side, which is, of course, my ears are completely covered up. So Adrian was nice enough. Uh, I, I took a lesson from Clara Peller, who was blind and deaf, that used to do all those Wendy's commercials that I worked on once, and I saw how they did it with her. And I asked Adrian, you know, what she was doing with her hands during the table read. She says, well, I haven't really been doing anything. They've been in my lap. I said, if it would not be improper, would you mind just tapping me on my thigh when it's my turn to speak? <laughs> so I get to say yeah. Adrian Barbeau actually <laughs> held my thigh. <laughs> Love it. But these are the tricks we have to learn. We, you've got to be creative whenever you're doing this because they are difficult no matter what you're yeah. doing. Um, which is another reason we make more money. Let's face it, we need that talent. <laughs> well, there's, uh, an old, there's an old saying, the easy ones will come up and bite you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the hard ones you pay attention to a lot, but the easy ones like walking into the wall. You know, you think, oh, this is easy. I can just count the steps. And somehow or another, something can go wrong. Yeah. Or for whatever reason, somebody's in front of you, and all of a sudden, yeah. your you, your step is as long as it was, and so now you turn too soon and you run into somebody. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and I we've had that happen. I ran into a you. Know, anybody know what a standpipe is for like the fire departments and everything? Those four six inch. I ran into one of those once with my left hip. Oh. Because oh. I was blind and in the dark. Yep. Pushing a gurney. <laughs> as an alien. Of course. <laughs> You know, no, we have no fun on this. <laughs> so how have you seen the industry change in the time you've been doing it? What have been the biggest changes you've noticed? Computers. I, I'm sorry. How have you seen the industry change in the time you've been doing it? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's a big question. It has changed from night to day. I mean, I think we both can talk say that. It's just a totally different industry. Um, everything we did was practical. I mean, totally, you know, if you had to roll a car, you had to do, be an alien, or, you know, it was the prosthetics, it was the makeup, it was, and, and they still do it, but now they have um, CGI, and they have um, what what it's called. Motion word, capture. Motion capture. Sorry, I can never remember that name. I hate it, that's why. The green balls. <laughs> yeah, and what basically it is is a big room with cameras on all around you on top. They put a costume on you with dots all over it that the computer sees. And they give you a stick for a sword and boxes to jump on. And then in the computer, they adjust everything and make it look real. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean, um, your lead actor. That all that make all those things in his head and everything, that was all done in the computer. So it's it's a totally different world than it was. I 
it, it really is. It's it's just the technology <laughs> and the computers. I mean, rarely, if ever, anymore is there filming the camera. It's all digital. Yeah. And I'll tell you, if you watch even on the big movie screens, it it may have beautiful, distinct, crisp colors, but you can tell that it's different than film. There's a different texture to it. Uh, to me, a bit artificial. But again, I, I grew up in a time where I've seen both. You know, you get somebody who's only 20 years old, they don't know any different. Like, what's a rotary phone? Uh, and so it's the technology that has really changed everything. And even with us, as she was saying, uh, if I wouldn't have the Guinness World Record if I'd only started five or 10 years ago because they don't need to apply the stuff the way they used to. Uh, I watched an episode behind the scenes of Doctor Who, which was where I first saw how they were doing this. Literally, total alien from the back of the head to their feet in costume and a green screen for a face. Yep. And they basically, with the dots and everything, and they would just project in the computer whatever they wanted on that. I don't know if they think it saves them money uh, in the long run. It's more comfortable, obviously, for the actor but they're spending just as much money on the computer graphics and the artistry of that as they would be uh, for doing it live. And years ago, I did a prototype for Batman and Robin where they had to decide were they gonna use a full life-size actor that they would do a body double of like myself versus just taking a generic body and, and a head and do it in the computer to make people look frozen. What was gonna be more economical? What was going to look more real? And uh, Paul Verhoeven came in and I literally stood right next to my, my life-size double as the Gotham City garbage collector. So they could see the difference between me and the live thing. And then they had the young man that was on the computer screen come in and see what his head looked like next to the frozen on, on the digital side. What they ever did, I was not privy to, I have no idea. Uh, I just know, like, uh, with Doug Jones, his original Billy is still out there in somebody's studio or at Warner Brothers vault somewhere. Our live twins <laughs> are out there, his Billy and my Gotham City garbage collector. They were both Warner Brothers projects. Yeah, a lot of stuff that they do um, with the computer, some of it looks okay. But on the plane coming here, I watched um, Bullet Train. Well, give me a break, guys. The guys aren't running on the top of the bullet train. The guy's not hanging off the backside as he's blowing him out. You know, it's, there's just no way on earth that they could do that. And to me, it looks stupid, but I don't, you know, maybe I'm just old school. You go back to the old days of black and white. I, I use the example of Gilligan's Island a lot because most people have seen that. And it's a typical example of how they had to use wires and everything just to get Gilligan in a big windstorm to look like he was being blown off the ground and parallel to the, the earth below him. Um, I actually did that as an experiment for real one time. I was on the cruise ship out in Hawaii when Hurricane Inaki came through in 92, and we were at sea. So I decided to try it. <laughs> oh, and no. I was up on the main deck, and I used the side rails. We're, we're headed into 95-mile-an-hour, 100-mile-an-hour winds on board ship out at sea. And I grabbed the rail, and I walked drew myself all the way up to the front at the front of the ship where I could grab the handrail and sure enough it was strong enough winds I literally blew up I was parallel to the deck you're out of your mind thank you <laughs> <laughs> and I, actually and what was funny was I some guy was there he watched me to make sure I was safe thank god <laughs> yep, I was safety first right 
And uh, he opened the, the bridge door for me so I could get inside and make sure that, you know, I got inside, my shirt was completely unbuttoned and not one button missing. Wow. That's how the wind was whipping it around. No, but it I was a fun experiment, honestly. I, I really had no fear in those days. Yeah, it can be done. It's just the way they're doing it with a computer. Yeah, it nowadays, just... it's, yeah, they wouldn't do it like that. And no. uh, there was an episode of um, The Invisible Man that I was on, and they called me because they thought they were gonna, this guy has to actually lean up in the coffin totally dead because The Invisible Man's going to steal his Rolex watch. The Invisible Man's invisible. This guy's going to sit up director that I knew just said, wait a minute, we don't need the scaffolding, we don't need the wires, which is the old school way they would have had to done it. And then, Absolutely. And then totally erased the wires in post-production. Yeah. The director says, I know this guy, he called me up, I figured a way out how to do it, no wires, no nothing. We went in and we did it, producers were like, I'd been a long lost grandchild or something when they came up and thank you, thank you, thank you, oh, it was so good. You know, it's wonderful to have that kind of reputation when people yeah, do come absolutely. for you based on things like that. But yeah, in the old days, they all they could think about was, we're gonna have to wire this person and pull them up and then we'll have to race the wires out. And that was, it's another one of the big changes. That's a very simple one. I mean, yeah. people still do wire work, don't get me oh, wrong. Yeah, we do a I lot. mean, to fly and everything, but they do it against a green screen. Yeah. Now they don't have to erase the wires because they already disappear in the green screen. Yeah. So it's computers and technology. What do you see changing in the future? Robots? God. Hopefully they doesn't need us. Yeah. <laughs> That's that, that, I, I, my first inkling when I talk to people is just like so much automation and everything else. I mean, you've seen the advent to me of cartoons yes. and the 3D. And now they've got video games, sporting events. And you swear it's the guy, actually the sports guy, real life. They've got it so accurate anymore in terms of likenesses that's the only it really it worries i mean i'm old enough that it's not going to bother me but it's almost like there's not going there's not going to be a need for a stunt person because they'll just put it in you know they'll just digitally put you in there it's like they're doing it with fire right now and i don't think it looks good but they can set him on fire by putting him in front of a green screen and then just putting the fire in later so we don't have to do a fire gag anymore which was fun. I don't like that. <laughs> it sounds fun, but, you know, the way we do it, it's safe, and it's, you know, I can't complain about that. But um, I like doing stunts, and, you know, I'd hate to see it go away because I don't think it looks as good digitally as it does real. That's just kind of my opinion. Don't worry. I think what they call professional wrestling will always be around. But, no, um, I think it was an interesting line in uh, – Next Generation from Data, I think it was, when he mentions the fact that that form of television uh, disappeared somewhere in the 21st century. Yeah, it does. And, and we are slowly headed that way, I think, yeah. with all the computer graphics and animation. And, you know, uh, I love the fact that there are still, still some people in the studios that say you'll never replace the theater experience. Right. It's like why Broadway is still there in New York, no matter what. Live performances are always going to be preferable over anything. So as actors go, the, the need, if you want to call it, or the pool of those that will be able to do it is going to be much smaller because you know, there's only going to be able to be so many theaters yeah. versus how many millions can see a show at one time. 
can let me can I just I'll reference something that sounds it may sound really funny, but in Star Trek, from the very beginnings, and you guys all know this, Gene Roddenberry had iPads, he had cell phones, he had all this stuff that we all looked at him and went, how's we gonna use the, that's stupid. How you know, nobody's gonna be able to take a phone and hold it to their face and have an iPad. Guess what we have today? So it's a prime example of what we didn't have, what we do have, and he was a genius. I mean, he was an absolute genius. And the other thing that John and I were talking about this morning was the, the machine that you stood in and it would teleport you somewhere, right? Well, I watch the History Channel a lot. And they can teleport an object, not a person yet, but they can teleport an object from one spot to another. Just it, Molecules come apart and they put it back together and it's perfect. So how long is it going to be before they do it with a person? I mean, it's a prime example of how this is changing, how our world is changing. I only have one fear of that. I'd love to see it happen. But you've seen what happens with crime on the internet. Guy beams in, steals the money out of the bank vault and is gone. <laughs> unless they've got ways to track all this stuff and, you know, and who knows, maybe they will, maybe they'll be smart enough to say, hey, there's a trace, and they can, so you can't get away with it. That's the only thing I hope for. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, Gene Roddenberry, by all means, was a, a visionary, to oh, say the least, yeah. but he was also a researcher. He had gone to NASA, he knew about what was yeah. in the works for the next 20 to 30 years, and he wanted to incorporate that, and uh, I think it was their designs that they came up with for this kind of thought technology that yes, our original cell phones were the flip phones like communicators and things like that. Absolutely. And now our tablets that look like Star Trek and other things have come to be. And you know, it just tells you if you've got a great imagination, if you've got logical thinking, you could be developing what, we, what people see in 50 years from now. So I wanted to open it up to the audience if you have questions, and there's two ways that you can ask them. We have a mic down at the end that I can turn on if you want to come up and ask yourself, or you can ask from your chair, and I will repeat it so we make sure it gets into the, the computer. Anyone have questions? Do you want to come to the mic? So the question is, how many times did you poke William Shatner in the eye? Uh, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it's a wonder he was laughing, I got to tell you. It, I could not see him. And, um, you know, they had the whole costume on it. That particular costume had a head on it that was sewn into the, you know, they took a mold of my face. I went to special effects, and they did a plaster mold of my face. And then they built the head around that so that it fit me and nobody else and sewed it all together and little slits in the eyes and I, of course I couldn't see him. So we would go to rehearse and I would smack him in the face or the back of the head with the, you know, and he, thank God he'd laugh. And I finally said, guys, you've got to take the head off. I've got to count these steps, see where I am and did exactly what you said. I backed myself up, counted my steps towards him so I knew my distance when I stopped that my suck, the suckers on the fingers would hit him. And we put the head back on, and we after we did the rehearsals, and it worked fine. But I hit him a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and do know there are some actors that wouldn't have that kind of sense of humor when things go wrong. 
So. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's funny, you hear pros and cons about William Shatner. And um, he was fine on the set with, you know, when we, we did, it was in the beginning, of course, too. And he's, he's a funny guy. We were in England um, doing a, a Star Trek convention. And he was sitting next to me, literally this close to me, you know, and he's got his entourage with him. And, and you're going, hi, you know, and he'd go, <laughs> you know, it's like focused. And I finally looked at him and I said, so do you don't remember going to Billy Blanks and working out? And he went, how do you know that? I said, I taught karate while you were in the other room that I could see working on the machines. After that, he kind of, you know, it was, the connection broke. It was different. He's, so He's wary of strangers, let's just put it that way. Yeah. Because back then and even, not, not so much now, later in life, but during the, the 70s and 80s especially, uh, they had to keep him protected. That's the best way I could say it. And he was. I mean, he was very wary. I still remember a convention I went to with uh, Jerry Ryan. And they had to put her in a separate room because of things that had come across in emails and other things mm -hmm. that you know she had to be concerned about. So, I mean, she was separated from everybody else at the convention and, and guarded. And they'd still have the lines, but every autograph line was monitored and everything. It, it does happen. But what's yes. really, what is so much fun in, in that same line of, because he did not know who you were sitting next to. No, he had and, no clue. And I have gone to conventions where I've run into Armin Shimmerman and uh, Gates McFadden and uh, originally Bob Picardo and some that had never seen me out of makeup because we get done in different areas of the studio lot. So I would go up to him. My most memorable one is with Armin. And I'm going to use some words I don't normally <laughs> use uh, because I want to quote him. We were at the Star Trek convention when it was at the old Hilton in Las Vegas. And we were down at uh, Quark's Bar in the Star Trek experience. Been there. And I walked up to Armin, now totally out of makeup, of course. I walk up to Armin and I said, hi. And he kind of gave me that. I recognize that, but I'm not sure who you are. And I said, I know you don't know me because you've never seen me out of makeup. He said, yes, but I know that voice. <laughs> I said, and I introduced, I said, I'm Bill Blair. And his eyes went up, his jaw dropped. And a moment after that, he said, oh, my, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> See, I just can't say it. It's just not in me. But it was, it was that really an eye-opening moment for him to actually meet somebody he had been on set with for seasons and had no idea what they looked like. The, the interesting part, and, and I don't, I think you probably agree with me, is they put these costumes on you and, and you, it's still you. And there's something about the costume, it's still a face and it's still you. And people go, I know that, why do I know that face? Because there's something about when you play in the monsters, or the aliens or whatever, and especially when it's prosthetics, it still looks like you. There's something about them that you can kind of recognize who it is, and you don't really know, but it's your face, your own face comes through on that costume. And that's a question I get, if I may expand on that, I get a question a lot about, you know, how do I play so many different creatures and aliens, like four different ones in the same episode. Babylon 5, I played human, and two different aliens sometimes in the same episode. And the trick is, it comes down to is, yes, 
if the eyes are seen, uh, yeah. windows to the soul. <clears throat> right. You've heard that. It, the eyes definitely, somebody looks at you and they'll say, oh, that's Bill. So I have to figure out a way that I change how my eyes look at people. I have to watch my body language. That's the second giveaway. Posture is everything. You know, now there are some like the board, there's no choice. You're gonna hold one posture in a tight, zippered up rubber <laughs> and vinyl costume. There's just, sitting down is sometimes a challenge. Impossible sometimes. Uh, no, it's only impossible until it's not. Well, yeah, and I've had slant, to do that. They had slant boards for yes. us. Sometimes you just have to lead back. Sometimes you, you get lunch through a straw because there's no uh -huh, mouth. It's in there. Um, but yeah, it's as, as a creature actor, alien actor, as I call myself, is truly upstairs here. I have to realize on Babylon 5, I could go in in the morning and be a Minbari. I go out at lunch, I clean up, I go back in the afternoon and get into scenes where I'm a Narn. So I actually played two, uh, more than one occasion, I would play two aliens in the same day's work. And I would have to just turn off one switch and turn on another, change gears to know exactly which character I was. What's the personality of this one? I'm going right. from a very mild-mannered, uh, religious-type uh, character, very uh, polite, posture-wise, and now I go to a Narn, at that particular time was warrior, aggressive, hated the Centurions. And then, the next day I come back, I'm human. I'm an officer. All of a sudden, I get, I get to be myself, but yet I gotta be military. Right. It's, you know, actors on stage, they get to play one character from the beginning of the show till the end of the show. And it goes from beginning to end. We get to break it we up. Get to break it up, yeah. Well, the other thing is, if you've watched Planet of the Apes, the big actors, all the actors that, like you said, play the same character all the way through the same gorilla, the same ape, whatever. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, Talking about relatives here. Come yeah. on. <laughs> you can recognize who they are. I mean, you really can see Roddy McDowell inside that mm -hmm. costume because like you said they play the same character from beginning to end what we do for a living is a little different because you have to take on the character or the person you're doubling and look like them and walk like them or you're not you can't i can't put on cloris leachman put her clothes on and walk around like me it isn't going to work i have to be her and I have to watch her and see how she walks and how she acts. And I have her, I had her down to a T, <laughs> literally, where a director came behind me and went, Cloris, Cloris. And I turned around and he went, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what we have yeah. to do besides play a character. We have to be that character. We have to be the actor that we're taking the place of in yes. certain times. Uh, unlike Sandy, I was fortunate enough or other, depending on how you look at it, I guess. I actually never actually doubled that many actors uh, the way you've had the opportunity to. Um, occasionally. Uh, I've been mistaken for a few, including by the TV guide people who thought I was Bill Mooney oh, as Lanier. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and I literally ended up, they were there to do an expose on Babylon 5, and I was next to Claudia Christian and the White Star, and instead of asking the right person, the whoever it was, asked somebody on crew, who's sitting next to Claudia? And they said, Bill. 
stranger, we both have the same first name, right? Yes. They didn't explain. So when it came out in the TV guide, it was Claudia, Christian, and Bill Mummy. Oh, Four funny. weeks later, they put the little blurb in the back of the magazine saying, no, that wasn't Bill Mummy, that was Bill Blair. You know, yeah, but you I, know. I got ribbed about that all day. They, yeah, they, well, they put it up on the wall credit. at the studios and everything. I never got a screen credit now. Uh, but Welcome. It's that, that's actually, in a sense, a compliment. When we actually look like the person that yeah. they really would recognize first. Uh, but most of the time, I, got, I actually got to play my own di individual characters uh, and create them for the show. So I think we had a question back. Did you have your hand up earlier? Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah, I, I was going to ask, um, were there any times, given how experienced you were in the press that you built in the industry, where a costume that someone else had designed maybe just wasn't quite working, and you had suggestions on how it could be improved to make the scene work or the character? And were they open to that, or you just pretty much made it work based on what you were given? So the question is, were there times when they had a costume that you got someone else had designed that didn't work quite the way they thought it would and you made suggestions and were they open to those suggestions or how did that go? The only problems I've ever had um, is sometimes, you know, you put a costume on and yes, it, the arm, something wouldn't do what you wanted it to do or especially since I do so many stunts in costumes that um, I have to be very careful if I'm going to fall or hit something that, you know, if the costume's going to rip or if I'm going to hit something that's hard, you know, a hard piece of the costume. So, um, yeah, usually with the costumes, I've never had a problem. Um, the only problems I've ever had is they're in a hurry. They're always in a hurry, and I'm a stickler for, you know, guys, just hold on. If I'm not happy, I'm not going to do it. And if you want to replace me, go for it, which they won't do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've never have been replaced, even when I literally had to stop production because I was going to get killed if I did go, you know. I, being brought up in, since I was 20, my mentors, the guys that helped me, told me, check your rigging. Make sure you're happy, and if you're not happy, open your mouth because it's your life. It's not that guy sitting over there that rigged it, you know, and you just have to learn how to do it politely so nobody gets mad, and it's like, can you do me a favor? Can you take a look at this? I don't think there's a backup tie on it or whatever it is, and they'll, you know, as long as you're not, listen, I want that fixed. <laughs> they're always open to helping you out. Um, I have never had a problem with it, but I'm pretty good at knowing how to ask for something. <laughs> I don't know about you. Well, actually, an interesting Star Trek story is costume-wise, had nothing. I was not there at the time. This was kind of after the fact. I was the beneficiary of it. Um, wardrobe forgot to put in, shall we say, the access panels for... Klingons that needed to go to the restroom. Oh, God. Uh, it required taking the whole costume off, just if like a lady was in a bodysuit. And ta we talked about economics. So by the second season, I guess they'd worked that problem out real well. Uh, for me personally, it's not so much about the costume itself, but like Sandy was saying, it's about the environment that we're working in. And 
the one that came to my mind, I mentioned earlier about the invisible man. And I'm in the coffin and uh, I made sure that my feet were anchored properly. Uh, they, again, were quite happy to take all the time necessary for me to make this look right because I had to, ex first of all, I had to extend my hand to a specific area in thin air where the invisible man would appear and rip the Rolex off my wrist. But what was also interesting was in this coffin, there were the hinges that would normally be opening and closing it. And based on how I had to sit up, I actually asked them if they could, they would remove one of the hinges for me. So there would be no chance of, of uh, damaging the costume. Because that's the other thing, a lot of times, we only have one shot at the costume. If it gets ruined, it's done. Yeah. They can't shoot it again. You know, a tear would take hours for the wardrobe department to repair. And uh, there's shows I've worked on where, you know, we've actually had to shut down production for over an hour because of a wardrobe, shall we say, malfunction and or change. Mm -hmm. So we get a lot of respect, and I, Sandy didn't allude to this, but I know Production really respects those of us. We put safety first. Mm -hmm. It was Robin Williams one time that I was fortunate enough to have a conversation with who used the phrase, that's life, this is just a movie. That's right. Okay, mm -hmm. and no matter what the producers say, they can, no, I don't care how much money they're spending, they can't replace anything that happens to us, if, especially if it takes our life. Yeah. So. It, the interesting part is, is that it, it's a, thing that I say is that the easiest things we do come up and bite you and I said this to you friend of mine stuntman been around forever was doing a fight scene in Atlanta is where he, they're shooting this movie this happened last week and he had him loafers and wardrobe was supposed to put it's called dance rubber on the bottom of the loafers so you don't slip right they didn't do it and production was in a hurry, and he put the clothes on, and he said, oh, screw it, I'll just do it. In the middle of the fight, his ankle didn't go this way. It went this way and just busted the, excuse me, you know what, out of his foot. And wardrobe comes over and, and goes, oh, you slipped. Well, here, let me put the rubber on the shoes. Uh, it's a little late, guys, but it's stupid little things. You've got to be careful. You've got to know your wardrobe, even if it's not a, a monster costume, just the wardrobe they put on you, and especially the guys. I mean, the girls get away with a little bit more. They do have to – I've worn high heels running in front of a car. But um, there's just little tricks, like the dance rubber on the bottom of your loafers will save your life, you know, or save you from breaking a bone and not being able to work for, what, six months or longer. We're on the pad in the lower back. Yep, that that one is too. the most important one ever. I don't care what fall you're doing, uh, even if you're just having to turn and twist in a bar fight, you want that lower back pad yep. as the most susceptible part of the human body, and I'm living proof of it. I'm not going to yep. go into that. It's, there's a bone, there's a pad that's oh, you about this it, long <laughs> and about that wide, and it goes over your coccyx bone where you sit, and if you bruise that thing, it takes one year to heal. I've been there. I know. <laughs> I think you had a question also. Did I mic or you? Uh, okay. Um, how fun is your entrance banquet prosthetic? 
says the prosecutor needs to be either been allowed to teach or teach for at least a summer here. So do you have any favorite prosthetics or costumes that you were allowed to keep or kept anyway? The only, I'm sure Bill's got a lot more than I do. The only thing I have at home, and I'm, it's in a box, and God only knows what it looks like by now. I doubled witchy poo on um, HR Puff and stuff. <laughs> and I have her nose somewhere. <laughs> it looks like that now. <laughs> Probably does. If I may elaborate, I'll show you a few things. And you can come up and see these when we're finished here. This is what remains of a Cardassian nose tip that I wore on set. How many years ago? Wow. Latex, a major portion of it is moisture. Otherwise, it wouldn't be pliable. Eventually, that moisture is going to evaporate unless you encase it in 100%. Saw a friend outside walking by. Uh, hydrogen. You could put it in a sealed case, suck all the regular air out, refill it with hydrogen, and reseal it, and then it would stay indefinitely which I did not do. No, no most people don't, and I haven't even, <laughs> I haven't even done that. I've, I've done my best. This one, for example, from Babylon 5, that was back in 25 years or so ago now, and this one's still holding because I got as much air out of this as possible, and I, and I do suck it out again every once in a while because it's not a completely... But that's an actual Bracari headpiece that I wore that I was allowed to keep. And if you're interested and you want to come up, it also shows an old Polaroid. If anybody knows what that is, that's how old this is. There is a Polaroid of what it looked like when it was on me. And I've got a few others here, too, that I brought. I'll have them at my table as well. Um, but, yeah, this is the difference. You can see the difference between the thicknesses. Here's some Vulcan ears um, and uh, something from uh, Voyager, uh, another one from Voyager, most of them for Voyager. I, I just have one Klingon nose tip from Deep Space Nine. I never even thought to ask to keep this stuff. I didn't. <laughs> Paramount, <laughs> Paramount was very, very, in other words, the makeup artists, when they were finished, were under orders. It had to go in the trash. Yeah. Had to go in the trash. However, after being there day after day after day for so many and having personal relationships with some of my makeup artists, they didn't say anything else about the fact that it had to go in the trash, so they would wrap the Klingon nose piece or whatever in a paper towel and drop it in the trash, and after they left what happened to it, they didn't care. Right. <laughs> I love it. Now, with, with the Bracari, and I've got them, I don't have, I can't carry them with me, unfortunately, but I actually still have a um, Minbari headpiece, and uh, the only thing I'm missing is the bone, because that would be reused time and time again. I only took those pieces out of the trash, supposedly, that would never be used again anyways. Uh, yep, so they don't, they never use it. But they, they just, just are worried about things like that making it into the public. So um, the makeup artist knew, no, he's not gonna do anything with those. He, this is for his record later on that I can prove things. Well, thank you so much for talking. Does anyone else have another burning question they want to get in before our time is up? I'll wave to the camera over there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. Thank you guys so much. Sandy and Bill will be at their table all weekend. You'll have plenty of time to hang out with them, talk with them, and both have more panels, and you know how to find those in our program guide. Um, so thanks for coming to listen. Thank you for well, thank being you here. Thank you so much, thank you guys. You.
Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. For more information about our organization and our upcoming events, check us out at starbaseindie.org. See you on the Starbase.